So let's um, just read. That sound good to everyone? Since we don't have a koan that we know of. And so let's read. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, what? I guess that I guess it's me because I'm first (laughs) at the letter A. Okay, you could be A. (laughs) The Buddhas and ancestral masters have provided the opportunities according to different situations and settled them without excess of words. They have lifted off the lids of their skulls and revealed their eyes to you. They want you to take up practice directly and not to seek elsewhere. If you, are, if you are a person of superior caliber, as soon as you're, you hear any one of these words, you will understand. Ultimately, there is no gate to pass through, nor any steps to be climbed. You must freely swing your arms and pass through the gate without asking the border guard. Haven't you heard Schwanshaw's word, gateless is the gate of liberation? Intentionlessness is the intent of the person of the way. Moreover, Bayan, that is Bayan Shadan, he said, although you clearly realize it, you can't pass through just this. This kind of talk is actually rubbing red clay on Kyle's milk. If you pass, if you can pass through a gateless barrier, you will make a fool out of me. If you cannot pass through the gateless barrier, you will let yourself down. The so-called mind of, of Nirvana is easy to know, but the wisdom of discernment is hard to understand. If you can clearly understand the wisdom of discernment, families and nations will naturally be at peace. Completed on the first year of the Shaoding era, 1128 of the Western calendar, five days before the end of summer retreat by the monk Wikai Wumen Bikshu, eighth generation descendant of Yangqi Fang Wei. I, yeah, I was thinking that was Wilman. Oh, I see, it says Wilman's post. I mean, I, that, that was Guo Gu, but um, because it was being cryptic. And so, I understand that now it's woman. Okay. Vogu's comment. I have already said way too much. (laughs) I have actually covered many facets of practice and life. One of the things I tried to convey is that these gongons are not so obscure or removed. These cases actually relate to your life addressing issues such as the challenges you face. What is life? What is the source of isolation and alienation? And what is the self and how it relates to practice and how practice relates to others? Most important, who am I? Basically, Wilman's postscript says that everything is already free. It's all good, I-A-G. He encourages you to practice and realize that you have already passed through the gateless barrier (coughs) because there is no gate. If you think you are still stuck in life, 
that somehow you cannot shake off your vexations and hang-ups, then take all these cases and chew on them until you disappear. The Buddhas and Pajas have opened their hearts and showed you everything. It is up to you to open your own heart and discover what lies within. Instead of seeking from outside, you must see that you, as you are, are reflected with on the wisdom and compassion of all the Buddhas right here, right now. Buddha Dharma is for hand up. If you give them up, what need is there for Buddha Dharma? Yet all of your hang-ups, obstructions, vexations in your life are precisely Buddha Dharma. They are your path. Be careful in your practice. Where is liberation? Where is freedom? Where is peace and joy in your life? If you think that peace and joy are something outside you, you have settled upon poop because outside you, everything is in flux. This is true indeed, but still, practice is necessary. Look at the ancient masters in their perfect conduct. They uphold the precepts, study the scriptures, learn from teachers. Humble yourself to receive the teachings and put them to use in your life. The teachings are simple. Stop pooping on your food and eating it. Stop giving others your poop to eat. See that there is no poop anywhere then drop even this idea of poop. <laughs> I think he's got poop on the mind. <laughs> it's you mostly must... when you're stuck in the anal stage, then <laughs> go on. You must begin at the foundation. Be humble enough to receive teachings from your teacher. If you have no teacher, find one. No book can substitute for a person who is practicing and actualizing the path. That's just how things work. If you want to receive the freshness of water, you have to hold the cup lower than the water jar. When the cup is lower, the water from the jar will pour into it. It won't work if the cup is already full or turned upside down or has holes on the bottom, or if it's full of poop, anything that goes in will be horrible. Being humble, you will be able to retain the teaching and be a vessel for Chan. Awakening is referred to in Wuman's postscript as the mind of Nirvana. This is called fundamental wisdom in Buddhism, which is relatively easily, easy to realize. What about wisdom of discernment? Why is that hard? The wisdom of discernment refers to teaching others. Even though you may be free, others are still suffering. You must know their suffering and be among them, relate to how they feel, and come up with expedient means to help them. True teachers are personable. They do not put on airs and distance themselves, themselves from anyone. With children, they offer candy dharma. With the lonely, they offer loving dharma. With the arrogant, they offer, they offer humble dharma. With covetous people, they dazzle them with nirvanic dharma. Chan masters are great bodhisattvas. They continue their practice to accumulate what is called acquired wisdom to help others. In perfecting the acquired wisdom of expedient means, Chan masters continue to repay their gratitude to the three jewels, 
They have already quenched their thirst from the spring water of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. They, to express gratitude, they ensured that three jewels continue to benefit others. May this book continue to quench the thirst of all practitioners. May the merit of this book dispel the darkness of ignorance and the obscurations to wisdom, so you may realize your own luminosity. Whatever wisdom you get from this book naturally comes from you. The flaws of this book naturally reveal my ignorance. Whose wisdom? Whose ignorance? Be free. Those ladies, nothing else. Well, any comments before we um, say we've read this book? <laughs> or are we all ready for the test? There's no test. <laughs> you sound like goo goo. This has already been passed. <laughs> okay, so someone, and it might have been me, promised we would find a talk by goo goo. And was that me? Yes. Okay. Yes. Well. It would be cool if I could say, well, here it is. Look. Um, look under, look under uh, Tallahassee Charm Center. He has a bunch of uh, talks on there. Uh, I'm there. The talks are Dharma talks. Okay, I'll read some and then we can decide on one. Well, Dharma talk series. Okay. Whoever says, like, stop or let's do it, we'll do it. Between life and death, chanting, commentaries on procedures of seated meditation, emotions, guided meditation, <coughs> Watu talks, marrow of Zen talks and Bodhidharma's two entrances and four practices, retreat talks, which is, I guess, is a Song of Awakening commentary series, special talks, talk on our Heart Sutra, talk on loving kindness, talk on <coughs> precepts, talk on Bhimalakirti Sutra, and then there's Zoom 2020-21 talks, session for tricycle, silent illumination at Mahamudra, session for tricycle, how to integrate direct contemplation into daily practice, three contemplations, three seals of the Dharma, direct contemplation, Bodhi mind, <coughs> John, Buddhist practice of being present to the sick and dying, 
opening yourself to all perspectives, silent illumination, teacher-student relationship, non-abiding in the fundamental reflections on the Platform Sutra, loving-kindness at meditation for healing. Maybe that would be a good one. Yeah. Since, since we have a uh, gigantic catastrophe going on. Let's just keep that in mind. I'll read a few more titles. Chan practice in daily life. Psychotherapy and Chan embodied experiencing spiritual bypassing, being present, <coughs> active in stillness, facing death, principles to manage stress, lotus rising out of muddy waters, home practice, compassion, for self and others, <coughs> practicing in times of uncertainty. How about John practice in daily life? Okay. Oh, uh, let me share. Kim, I just wanted to say that was a great email you sent out about our next depth in practice. Oh, well, thank you. Can you hear it? No. Yes or no? No. No. Could be understood as uh, you are here now. Or I think so. no. It could be yeah. quite profound. And he, I'll turn it up. I'm sorry, what? I'll turn it up. As a tradition. Yeah. Chan emerged as a countercultural <laughs> movement within Buddhism. Specifically within scholastic Buddhism. So when Buddhism transmitted from India to China. How's everyone tonight? And then the real life situations in your life. What you're working so with, talk, that is the greatest blessing that you have. Can you hear it? To bring to life the wisdom of John. The wisdom. Your own resources. Your own freedom. Uh, wisdom and compassion as you relate to others. So there are more that can be said about this, but I'll stop here tonight. Did you intend to go to the, all the way to the end of that talk? We'll start over, sorry.
I thought that was volume. How's everyone tonight? Hope you're well. So tonight's talk is Chan and daily practice. Daily life. It's a very ordinary topic. Chan, daily life. Uh, could be understood as uh, ordinary. It could be quite profound. As a tradition, Chan emerged as a countercultural movement within Buddhism. Specifically within scholastic Buddhism. So when Buddhism transmitted from India to China, went through different phases. Uh, from first century onward until the emergence of Chan. Uh, seventh century, eighth century, as a self-conscious movement. Of course, there are precedents for that. But prior to Chan, the emergence of Chan as a, as a tradition, what was happening in China was receiving this foreign tradition, religion. The missionaries coming to China, engaging in translation. And the translation process is a kind of dialectical process of mistakes and new offshoots through the lens of Taoism. So you see the early translations of different Buddhist scriptures. Of course, these scriptures went through multiple translations, some of them. Precisely because the early translations, the Chinese on the receiving end was trying to fathom this foreign religious tradition, practice, completely, completely different orientation to one's self and our place in the world and uh, the nature of the self and the world. Uh, very different. From China. So trying to fathom through the categories, the words and language that uh, the Chinese had at hand, you know, translating the Buddha as the great immortal, right? translating terms like skandhas, the five aggregates, form, sensation, perception, conception, volition, consciousness. Sometimes translated perceptions, sometimes translated conception. Uh, so these five scandals, translating the scandals as the yin of the yin yang, right? dialectic. And so it's 
just wrong translations. So, but through that mistake, yeah. uh, emerged new new ways of understanding Buddhism. Of course, this better translation from the fourth century onward, the coming to China of Kumarajiva. So this process of first phase of kind of mistranslations, second phase, once you have better translation, the Buddhists in China really understood what Buddhism was about. Wrote treatises, commentaries, centering on scriptures, the classics, developing different systems of thought around these particular scriptures. This phase is what I called uh, scholastic Buddhism. It's like uh, diagnosing, analyzing, theorizing what Buddhism is really talking about. Of course, Buddhism contains thousands of scriptures. So it's not like the Judeo-Christian tradition, it's one Bible at most, you know, a commentary. That's thousands of scriptures. So these translations, these uh, had kind of internal conflicts. And being the Chinese tradition, something very unique happened during the second phase of scholasticism. That is doctrinal classification, classifying, harmonizing, integrating different scriptures, placing them in its uh, map of the Buddhist tradition, finding it uh, in its right place, right? What's the elementary level of teaching? What's the intermediate? What's the advanced and ultimate based on certain scriptures? So, uh, Chan tradition, and this went on for a uh, few centuries. Right? So Chan emerged as a tradition that sought to move away from scriptures to bring the Buddha Dharma down from the clouds and body it in one's own life. Thus, you have the Chan traditions four axioms the teaching outside of the scriptures. Of course, these four axioms can only make sense in this context of scholastic Buddhism. So first axiom, it is a tradition independent from words and language. Outside of the scriptures. Direct pointing to the heart, the mind. I'm using these two, mind, heart, as one. Uh, seeing one's true nature, self-nature, becoming a Buddha. So brought Buddhahood down from the clouds into the lives of practitioners. Instead of this aloof, distant, uh, unreachable goal. Uh, John brought it down into the daily life of people. 
So it's positionality within the whole of Buddhism at that time. Everywhere, everywhere, whether it's India, whether it's other parts of region. Tibet didn't even have Buddhism yet during that time. Tibet received Buddhism in the 8th, 9th century, right? 7th, 8th, 9th centuries. This is quite, quite early. And uh, South South Asia, Southeast Asia, very unique phenomenon. Reinterpreted, repositioned traditional teachings to be something quite concrete, relevant to and practical the lives of people. So the Chan approach to practice, spiritual practice, the whole orientation, quite different, quite different. Uh, than uh, other Buddhist traditions at the time. And this unique quality of cutting to the chase, kind of getting right down to what is at the core of the teaching, awakening. And how is it uh, possible to Make it, make it accessible in uh, people's lives. Uh, so, of course, the word Chan is a, a abbreviation of Chana, uh, which is a transliteration, not a translation, transliteration of the sound, the Sanskrit word, Dhyana. Dhyana. So, with the Chinese penchant for abbreviation, cutting to the chase, practical, direct access uh, to things, this tendency, of course, it just dropped the second character, na, just chan. So, in the early text, chan text, or rather meditation text, manuals, Jhana or meditation means something very different. So by the 7th, 8th century, the Buddhists witnessed a kind of internal revolution, reinterpretation, different regions, you know, different pockets had their, had their own um, uh, interpretation, right? connected but regionally developed, but all center around this, uh, center around this uh, something practical. Yeah. So Chan morphed from meditation to wisdom. Right? So the blending of wisdom and meditation into one. What is this wisdom? It's the core teaching of Dharma. And moving away from gradualistic, hierarchical, sequential way of practicing, learning, studying the scripture and the words and language 
to uh, the direct pointing of the transformation of one's mind, one's vexations. So several several shifts. Chan no longer means meditation. Chan, of course, the precursor. Japan wasn't even on the scene yet. This is 12th century. So uh, this is something happening within China. So the word China moved away from the, the limited, narrow definition of meditation. It's no longer about meditation, seated meditation specifically. And that's number one. Number two, Chan took on new flavors of meaning to mean Buddhahood, to mean wisdom. That means the union of, uh, you can say, meditation and wisdom, samadhi and prajna. And uh, cutting to the chase to move away from the external trappings of this Buddhist religious tradition into the core, the center, in the midst of daily life. So meditation, of course, is very central within the Chan Zen tradition. But this meditation is no longer limited to seated posture. So it, they're developed uh, through several generations. Uh, a self-conscious movement away from this gradualist, it should be a sudden approach. You, know, you can call it bypassing, right? Spiritual bypassing approach in a positive way to the core of with the Dharma. Um, hence, you have these four axioms a teaching outside, not dependent on words and language. So it's a wordless teaching, the wordless Dharma, the ineffable. Right? All words are constructs, narratives, whether it's Buddhist or secular. These are human constructs. It doesn't, and with constructs, the nature of words itself is divisive. Right? The nature of words uh, is to separate things, clarify. Right? And uh, uh, with different categories, labels. So uh, teaching outside words and language, special teaching independent of you know, scriptures, but what the scriptures point to. So the analogy is the scriptures are like finger pointing at the moon. Right? It's not really the finger that's important. It's the moon, the moon of our heart, of our mind, the moon of awakening. Direct pointing to the heart of things and realize Buddhahood 
through seeing self-nature. In other words, from the external trappings or lofty teachings, move it down from the clouds into one's heart. It is about the mind dharma, the mind teaching. Mind here does not mean some kind of cerebral mental process. Uh, it includes uh, the heart. Now we tend to see things in terms of kind of mind versus heart. But um, the Chinese uh, use one word, xin, to be all-inclusive, right? because it's not separate. You can't really separate the things. Different aspects, different dimensions of our being are um, integrated. So, John, how did it practically bring it down from the clouds? It no longer placed great emphasis in seated meditation, instead in daily life. Now, it's not a new invention, that this emphasis in daily life, the chaos, commotion, ups and downs, and turmoils in, of daily life to be the arena of spiritual practice. That's not the invention of Chan. Already in later developed Mahayana scriptures uh, talks about it this way. Samsara as Nirvana. As this, is the, this is the arena in which Bodhisattva practitioners uh, reach Buddhahood. It's not to run away from it, to fully engage with, equipped with uh, the Bodhisattva practices. So what Chan did was simply begin to embody it, embody this ideal, abstracted kind of Mahayana scriptural ideal into lived experiences. Right? So a whole tradition evolved around that. Uh, so this means Every aspect of life becomes opportunities to practice. Now, you must have a foundation. Mind you that if you don't have a foundation, then you would practice relying on that which you have always relied on, which is words and language, you know, taking some old Chan master's teaching as some kind of sacred scripture, and uh, hold on to it, attach to it, as if, if some kind of a ultimate truth. So that defeats the whole purpose. Defeats the whole purpose. So who are the audience? Under what circumstances did this teaching evolve, this tradition evolve? Within the monastic tradition. So these, we're talking about monks and nuns, already familiar with precept, the scriptures, you know, meditation practice, but they have a foundation. And, uh, and uh, it's on top of this foundation that one can uh, take a step forward beyond, right? If you don't have the foundation, then see the meditation is necessary. Right? Otherwise you just rely on your discursive thinking.
imagination, ruminations, the constructs. So we have a name for that in Chan. A critique of people that talk like that. It's called the words Chan, you know, wording about Chan, or uh, literate Chan. Right? So these are people just mouthing about Chan. They can't really embody it. As soon as uh, vexations come, they don't see it as opportunity. They're sucked into the vortex and they have all kinds of vexations, right? emotional afflictions, so greed, hatred, ignorance. Readily present. So these people just all talk, no practice. So we have that also in contemporary time. There's always going to be people like that. It's fine. Sooner or later, they'll come to realize the importance of embodiment of this uh, path and uh, hopefully seek out teaching. So one of the concrete ways uh, Chan tradition embodied this uh, happened kind of unintentionally, unintentionally. Historical circumstances such that socio-political upheavals within China with various uh, persecutions, imperial state persecution of Buddhism, because Buddhism was growing like mushrooms, right? So these institutions, monasteries, very powerful, a lot of uh, clout. And uh, with the uh, rise and fall of different emperors, it's always been this ambivalent relationship between state and religion. Some of these emperors, uh, staunch Taoists or Confucians, so they persecute Buddhism. So some of some of the harshest persecution was the ninth century, and uh, you know some of the doctrinal schools within Buddhism. Uh, really took a lot of damage, destruction. They depend on words. They have right treatises. They depend on Buddhist statues. They do their rituals around you know, uh, these apparatuses. So uh, never really fully recovered some of these doctrinal schools. But Chan, you know, you know, the government persecuted, they want you know, lay aside, meaning return having monks forcibly return them back to lay life. So lay aside them, you know, uh, confiscate uh, monastery, uh, statues, wealth, buildings, turn into schools, turn into Taoist temples. So a lot of this. So since China is a formless teaching, right? not dependent on the external trappings, it's fine, you want me to grow my hair, fine. You chase me out, Make me a layperson, fine. So the Chan really survived these persecutions, right? Uh, one of which was in the mid eight, uh, mid ninth century. All the monarchs were destroyed, and people moved to the mountains, and these communities of practitioners, you know, lay aside. And some of them uh, remained their monastic identity, but they just went in hiding. You know, they didn't have anything to live. The Chan Monastery is the term for Chan Monasteries. 
and, and that is forests, as in like trees, forests. Why is that? It dates back to that time. People were just living in the wilderness. So they build, hand build their monasteries. So how do they do that? They took their practice to daily life, carrying water, building shacks so they can practice together. Now one day without work, one day without food. Everyone's got to contribute, including the abbot. So this spirit of Chan continued, became part of the part of the identity. Chan embodied in daily life. And uh, many of these monks during this time sojourned to different teachers. Because right? they're all dispersed, spread out different regions, uh, mountains, and so on. Because the cities are just really dominated by uh, government, right? So it was seen as a threat. So a lot of the Barnes and Noble, you know, borders, you know, books, store tr translations of Ch old Chan masters, discourse records, and so on, took, a, took, took shape during that time. You see one monk sojourned to different monasteries, Ask this monk for teaching, ask that master to teach him some interaction. It's basically in this context. Right? And uh, lineages began to form around different teachers in these forest traditions. And, uh, uh, and their practice was communal living. Right? Everyone must take part. Cook is practice, tending the fire is practice, getting the fire with chopping wood is practice, carrying water. There's no water readily available. You gotta go down to the river and you gotta come back up to the uh, site where people practice. And what do you do? Yeah. That inconvenient state. You gotta plant your own vegetables, then you eat them, then you take care of, you know, uh, nutrients for the vegetables. What is that? Uh, human feces. <laughs> you know, so you eat the vegetable, and their bodies are trust me, the bodies are clean, cleaner than modern people. You know, and they mix with soil, and they, depending on nature, they live off the land. You know? So this has always been central. So. When we have, even now, when we have the Chan tradition moving out of the monastic wall into late societies, modern time, in Chan retreats, something very unique, right? different than other forms of Buddhism. What is that? Work practice. Everyone, I pay money on retreat to go to, to work and clean the Chan hall, clean the toilet. Yeah, this is very unique. But that comes from that time. It became part of the identity, the spirit of Chan. Sitting meditation is part of the practice, of course. Nothing really special than other Buddhist traditions. It's just part of the regiment. Study as well. But the heart of the practice for Chan practitioners, monastic or lay, they know this is something that must be integrated into life. What is a practice then? 
it's called the inner path. Ordinarily, people's minds are swirled around, swirled about by causes and conditions, the ups and downs, social, political, familial, individual uh, conditions. Things are unstable. We can't depend on that for our own sanity. That's a precarious way to live. So the kind of inner stability, anchor, groundings, in the midst of difficulty, our mind is not swirled about by it. That is what defines Sitting. So even the Chan reinterpreted Zazen, Zazen, sitting meditation, Zuo Chan. The definition of Zuo or or Za or sitting. Nothing to do with posture. Now you can just take a look at the Platform Sutra, the sixth ancestral teacher of the Chan tradition. How do they define sitting? Unwavered by circumstances. You can be unwavered when you're doing work. That's what people are doing, training themselves. Uh, In difficult times, challenging times, ambivalent situations that they find themselves, their mind is not stirred up. Not to be a stoic, fully aware, engaged. Why is that? Because of the principle of meditation. So sitting, unwavered. How do they define meditation? Seeing self-nature. Seeing self-nature. That's meditation. So wisdom, see? Meditation is identified with wisdom. So even the term zazen, sitting meditation, is understood as unwavered, fully engaged, Yet, in the midst of it all, wisdom is present. What is that wisdom? Selflessness. Selflessness. Sometimes it's called emptiness. Not an abstract notion. Emptiness. How I define it. Relationship. In the midst of everything. So guagu is made up of non-guagu. Uh, nothing possessable. No ownership. Yet fully utilize what is present. So I'll, I'll get to how that practically plays out uh, a little later. So, uh, you know, in the midst of the complexity of life, how this translates to our modern time, we must, if you practice Chan, you must learn, of course, to have a good foundation. To have a good foundation. If you don't have a meditation foundation, like how Chan arose within the monastic walls, they have good foundation right? in meditation. You must have a good foundation, but you must know that Chan is not sitting meditation. 
it's life itself. And what is life? The ups and downs that you experience. We are bearing witness to upheavals of racial violence, of uh, various movements that highlights the way we discriminate against others, the way we take on privileges for ourselves uh, unawarely. So the process of expose, exposing all these things. It is precisely in the midst of this that we are not sucked into the vortex, yet we fully engage, fully engage. And uh, if you see yourself engaging and you uh, are being criticized or you are, you know, giving rise to vexations, uh, feeling emotionally distraught, then you have to come back to the foundation, come back to that foundation. That means the foundation is not uh, solid. So when you're in good foundation, then you engage again. To whatever level you're able to, because right? Chan practice is about relationship. Something is more difficult for you, and you can't really face it at this time. You bring it into your awareness. Right? You leave it at the corner of your mind. Right? Slowly, you can bring it so you can really face it. Really face it. If you cannot, put it in the corner. Don't dismiss it. Don't run away from it. No. Don't be sucked into it. So, life is the path. Relationship is the principle. In the midst of relationship, there's no self. It must be present to all. But if we get ourselves our own narrative into it, it's very difficult to come out of it. So to truly be present, you know, we had to give ourselves so much space that our self is absent, not so get caught up in it. Our own narratives, personal histories, we can see what needs to be done. For example, um, uh, 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 so what I've been talking about is what practice is, right? But this is not, even for Chan practitioners, uh, very difficult, you know, especially for people that, you know, bring to practice their own ideas what they think practice is. So they see practice as meditation. They see practice as awakening, so they kind of chase after. They have a fixed idea of what practice is. There is no fixation in relationships as in 
Chan teachings. Chan teachings emerge in the interaction, in the in-between dynamics between teacher and student, between two people, between two groups of people. So there's no fixed teachings. It's formless, formless. But a lot of practitioners still attach to form. For example, one of the greatest Chan masters, Da Hui, Da Hui Zhonggao, uh, great advocate of the Huato practice, Koan. Uh, he's the hero of Japanese Rinzai Zen, Hakuen, right? in the 18th century. So he has a student. He, he has a student. Um, his name is uh, Dao Qian. Dao Qian. Been practicing with Da Hui, this great master, for 20 years. 20 years. And uh, all Da Hui did was just tell him to you know, do some, run some errands, you know, go to carry this letter to this lay person's house, you know, do this and do that, do that. So all along, Dao Qian's been thinking, is he withholding some secret teaching to me? Why do other people get, some, get to sit in the meditation hall or do the work and I'm always get stuck doing errands for him. You know? So he's been waiting for the Chan teachings. As if running errands, doing menial labor is not Chan. So he has this fixed idea. Right? The last time, Dao Hui wrote a letter to uh, Zhang Jiuchen. It's great literati. Or influential little letter to him. Don't you yeah. take the letter to him? Have to sojourn through mountains and so on. And uh, he's really frustrated. He's like, he's about to leave. Like, again, I don't get to practice. This teacher just makes me do these things. And then his daughter brother, Zhong Yuan, found out. I said, let me just. Let me tell you, let me make a deal with you. I'll go with you. Now, Zhong Yuan was awakened. Dao Qian obviously had this fixed idea of what practice is. That became his obstruction. See? Any fixation, any hang ups you have, whatever you can let go of, that's your obstruction. So Dao Qian has got himself into this ball of angst, dis-ease. Now his life is pretty simple as a monk. You know, he just run errands, do his menial labors. So his mind was kind of collected, except this one thing, that his heart, and uh, hang up. Right? So Zhong Yuan took a, took a look at him, saw what's happening. Just let me go with you. Let me make you a deal. All you need to do, I'll, I'll take care of everything. I'll be your attendant. All you need to do is wear your clothes, eat, uh, pee, poop, and sleep. I'll carry your bag, I'll take your letter, we'll get there and you can hand it over. I'll be your attendant. So, but you have to promise that's all that you do and take care of this 
take care of this. Uh, that which you feel inside. So they got on the ship. Very briefly, he was able to, his daughter brother was really able to help him, gave him the secret to practice. That is no obstructions, no hangups. That's the secret. Not relying on anything. Put it down. So, on the beginning of the trip, right, this guy's got 20 years under his belt. Whatever practice he was doing, you know, I'm sure he's reading scripture, he's reading you know, different uh, Chan texts. You know, by that time, 12th century, there was text circulating Chan. And for he's just developed this wonderment, the sense of dis-ease. Right? Where is the teaching? Where is the true 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 teaching? Why, why, why am I not giving the true teaching? Develop this and that. It's only it helped him. Not far into the trip. Put clothes on, ate, he peed. When it's time to poop, he pooped. Got to sleep, he slept. Great awakening. Finally, when he able when he was able to just do what's present at him, put down everything that he has constructed, including his wonderment. He just put it down. Then the gateless barrier of awakening opened for him. He turned. Zongyuan says, thank you. Brother, no need to travel with me anymore. I'll carry the letter to him. Uh, he realized, practice. But people typically have some fixations, notions that they're carrying. Now, if we reflect that to our lives, he's just got he was a monastic, He's just got one baggage that he needed to put it down. How many baggages do we have? <laughs> a lot, right? We worry about this. We're hung up about that. You know, we're, you know, in our daily life, we're caught up with this. Now, this, the moral of the story is not to put down everything. Literally, I have the leisure to do that. The moral of the story is the principle of this wordless mind dharma teaching. You have to cut through and see what is ahead. You have to see through the veil of all the narratives, all the baggage that we carry, some of which are very deep and have shaped our very identity, our very life. They're very important to us, these different values. Values of race, values that we've experienced discrimination, values of 
learned uh, implicit biases that we hold, privileges that we own, projections that we have on others. So some of these are very deeply ingrained. So we need to face them. We need to accept them. We need to see the workings of these conditions, how they have shaped our life. And we have to learn to engage but disentangle from them. The more entangled we are, that's all that we're ever going to be, just those values. Do they shape us, bring meaning in our lives? Yes. But they also carry with it whatever truth that they have. They also carry with it the flaws, uh, the vexations. So truth and vexations, right and wrong. This is the entanglement of the world. You can't have one without the other. Within all good, there's also potentially not so good. Within the not so good, there's also the silver lining. How deeply we are defined shapes our decisions. So we must see that clearly. Accept them. Work with them. But have the ability to put them down, to be free from them. To be able to put ourselves out of the situation. That's very difficult. Especially that which you have so much vested interest and history in. Very difficult. Very difficult to put it down. That's where practice is. Whatever you cannot put down. It may be very good. It may be wholesome. It may be who you are. Whatever you cannot put down. That becomes your obstacle. So there's a story of uh, maybe a fable. This great learned uh, monk carries with him is kind of, uh, back then is just kind of like this rack that people carry with books in them. Nowadays we've designed school bags, but back then it's just kind of like wooden rack in which they have they can hold a lot of things. They can hold Buddhist statues, they can hold their scriptures, and monks carry sojourn from one place to another. Always carry this with them. Went to a charm master. Greatly attached to it. These are that which he values so much. The John Master says, what do you got there? This the great scriptures, the Buddhist text. Says, Look again. He opened it. There's a snake in it. So the, the point of that story is, you know, whatever 
we attach to, hold on to, identify. It doesn't matter what it is. Whatever we have vested interest in, we're bound by it. We're tethered to it. We're not free. And the point is not to disengage. That's wrong also. Run away. Let me just disentangle from everything there. That is also wrong. That itself is one of the greatest entanglements. Practice based on some notion, some idea of detachment, of what true practice is. And all that is just knowledge, constructs. Practice is your life. So in this practice, we learn to face, to discover, and to be accepted. There are history. It's a real history that made our life meaning. Yes, you must work through them. You must pres- be present to them. But the point is not to wallow in them, entangle yourself deeper and deeper. You must develop the ability to be free, to be free from them, to be able to put yourself out, take yourself out of the situation. This is very easy to, to actually see how vested we are in the things that we do. Yeah. Board meetings, where people share their opinion of things, how you hold on to your own idea, right? your own views of things. Right? And we demand other people to accept. Right? So uh, teachers do this as well. Right? So teachers are also practicing. Now people bring to teachers a lot of expectations. And uh, sometimes they criticize teachers. So teachers may have to apologize. It's all good. The point is, in the midst of this, is your heart at ease? Are you free? Are you free? That is John daily life practice. That's what practice is. So do we need sitting meditation? Yes, you need a foundation if you don't have good foundation. And we need discipline. We need to learn to at least expose what is happening within us so we can see the mind's pattern mind's negative tendencies and then the real life situations in your life what you're working with that is the greatest blessing that you have to bring to life the wisdom of John the wisdom your own resources your own freedom wisdom and compassion as you relate to others. So there are more that can be said about this, but I'll stop here tonight.
That was a good choice, Donna. Yeah, I really, I learned so much from that. You want to say what? I, I just knew pretty much nothing about Sean. I mean, just coming to this group and, and t reading this, these few sections of the book that I've been a part of have uh, been my only exposure to Sean. So I just knew it was a precursor to Zen. So um, I, I love, I just sort of love learning like the history and the context out of, out of which things arose. And so that, that was helpful to me. Yeah, we feel, I feel a little more like I know him, you know, after reading the book and now hearing his voice like that. I would definitely like to study with him if I lived in Tallahassee. I've been there to Tallahassee. I had a good friend there. I really was struck by um, how, because of the political situation, um, Chan, basically they were forced to, um, Buddhist practitioners were forced to become lay people or to move out of the monasteries and, um, you know, practice in a different way uh, than they had been, which I guess had been more um, studying and uh, conceptual and learning the teachings and a lot of ritual and living monastically in that way. Um, and it was just very interesting to me that they were basically forced to come out of the monastic settings and, uh, and bring their practice into everyday, you know, life, you know, it's, it's pretty, it, kind of reminds me a little bit about the, um, you know, Tibetan Buddhism, how the diaspora that happened when China invaded Tibet and all these wonderful teachings, you know, uh, kind of were forced, you know, to disperse. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it, so this Chan, um, it's given me a, um, you know, a different perspective on it. It's very interesting. So there was always this competition between the emperor and the religion. You know, who was going to control the, the people? And in Japan, at one point, uh, <coughs> priests were forced to marry. And we, I think we learned, Donna, you were probably around then, that that they uh, the reason for it was they thought that that would kill religion and it didn't work. Yeah, they actually had to put boots on the ground and bring the practice that they'd been studying uh, from what I was listening to well, go uh, into into everyday existence, you know, and um, I think that that's uh, that's the whole embodiment piece. No, otherwise, otherwise, it just stays in some sort of uh, experiential, needing certain conditions. Everything has to be just so, 
you know, in order to feel peace, for instance, or, you know, to have wisdom, you know, it's, uh, I mean, because heaven knows, um, I don't have that luxury. <laughs> so um, I appreciate a, um, um, a practice that allows me to um, actually meet the stuff that happens to me all day, all day long. So when you meet, meet it, I met something really devastating a couple of days ago, finding out something about someone who I had a lot of faith in that was negative. And um, it wasn't enough to just meet it. What really helped me was realizing that uh, there's all this stuff that's going on with his life and how he's kind of ruined it and stuff like that. And realizing that that was separate from me. And that helped. Like, why was I getting so involved in this? Why did it affect me so much? Or, or even when people pass away, you know, I didn't pass away. The hardest one was someone in my life now who passed away that, because I had all these people pass away in the last two weeks. And I realized there was, that was the one that affected me the most because <laughs> kind of for a selfish reason that it changed my life now. But there was, that was a funny thought that, that, um, Now, this didn't happen to me. Maybe it's a selfish thought. I don't know, but no, I, I think um, I, I was think taking that... it very personal, I guess. Right, right. That's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing that what you were actually um, what's getting you over it is the idea. It's not personal to you. Do you know what I'm saying? It's no one did like anything. That. They didn't do it to me. Right. It, yeah. It's like. It's like we have this person that takes, they feels like they're the center of everything, <laughs> you know, and everything is about this person. And there's, a, there's that time when you have a thought and then, and then you notice you feel different. And that, that was what happened here. Yeah. I, I once had a, um, an experience when I was getting yelled at when I realized it wasn't about me. <laughs> Even, even though, even though they were saying my name and <clears throat> telling me I was bad, I, I just, I had this thought like you did, Kim, that, oh, this isn't about me. And um, I think Peg would, might say something to the effect is in that brief moment, this idea of your small self isn't really, um, it's not picking up the bait. It's kind of in abeyance for a moment, you know, and uh, I think that's a good thing. I, I, I thought, I, oh, go on. No, I was just going to say, I, I think Wogu in his talk was 
you know, talking a lot about uh, dropping the um, the narratives, really, you know, the whole story of everything. So that's what it's reminding me of. Yeah, I'm glad we did that. I'm sure glad we read the 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 Quran uh, book. And I look forward to I watched a minute of the movie that I've seen a number of times and it's really fun to see her. Uh, Joko Beck. So that's next week. Next week, yes. There was Flint was going to give a talk on Labor Day, but he's not going to do that. I don't know if you read that somewhere, but it's not going to happen. Oh, Stephanie needed to sign off. She found the talk encouraging and inspiring. I'm going, I'm learning so much that I did not know about Chan. I had many misconceptions. See you all next Monday. I think that Donna, you tell me whether you, you, <laughs> this resonates with you, but I think the Chan people look down a little on Zen, that they feel they're a little better than Zen. And I don't feel that so much with Guo Gu as with just other Chan people that. I am. Honestly, haven't met enough John people to to have experienced that. Um, like Zen is a stepchild. It's certainly possible, but I think that um, you know the few Chinese Zen people that I have ever met that um, their Chan practice is sufficient unto them, and you know the our Japanese version. Uh, with Dogen is sufficient unto us. And, you know, I, I've never gotten any sense of, you know, uh, big brother, little brother. or um, Yeah. So, well, the same thing, but I think that's, that's going away now where uh, the Japanese are now having more respect for Americans in their practice. Uh, certainly in the Soto, Soto yeah. school, because, you know, they, the, the Japanese actually, reached out to a lot of, of teachers, particularly some of them from the San Francisco Zen Center. And they have gone to Japan and they have, you know, been, they've done the rituals, they have received the blessing of, you know, Aheji and whatnot. Um, I guess, um, oh gosh, the Houston Galen, Galen Godwin has is one of those who's yeah. Well, she was a representative last year for mm -hmm. for Soto Zen, right? And a Reb has done it, and you know they're they're. Um, I think, you know, I, I at some of the um, uh, Shohaku Okamura um, uh, Genzoes that I've been to. Uh, especially the last one where there were so many people from, you know, around the world practically at the Austin Zen Center to for that particular uh, retreat. Um, 
I did catch sort of a, a whiff from some of the Japanese attendees that um, they were not, you know, they, they definitely did have a slight sense of superiority over the rest of us, perhaps just because, you know, they knew Japanese and, um, you know, the, but, you know, they, they really seem to um, have so much respect for Shohaka Okamura, who in turn seems to have respect for all of us. So I think it all came out in the wash. <laughs> I am. Um, could somebody tell me what's the main difference between Sean and Zen? I think that's a really hard question because it's more that it's a different uh, society, China and Japan. So every time Buddhism went to a different society, it changes and it takes on the the personality of the society. So, and then well, whether it's rural or city too, it takes on a different, but I don't, I can't give you a good answer. And the, the Chinese has had, uh, especially uh, from the time of Mao, when it was uh, so suppressed that uh, the Chan seems to be, again, you know, it seemed to survive best out in the countryside but even, even in Maoist times, uh, many monasteries were destroyed and, you know, sites defaced. And so, you know, what, what's coming back now, you know, and the, the, the Chan of mainland China versus the Chan of Taiwan, I think there's some, you know, again, it's cultural differences. And... Well you know, the, I think it, it's primarily, you know, Lin Ji, Rinzai uh, in China. Um, at least that's, you know, the, as I understand it, the, the, uh, the Kao, Sao Dong, which is, is Soto, you know, it's the, same, it's the same school as Soto. I assume it's still in China, but I, it's not something I've really, I only seem to ever hear about Lin Ji. Ah, yes, John Buddhism, our first book. <laughs> and, and so Donna and I and some other people were reading this, and we're on page 146. We would meet at my house, and so we have like 20 pages to go, Donna. Really? Yeah, <laughs> from about uh, four or five years ago. I remember when you did that. I, I okay. wasn't involved, but I remember. But you know what I'm hearing? This is what I like about Buddhism, is that it doesn't matter what country it goes to, it, it, it somehow finds its way to be expressed, um, you know, the heart of it, uh, in each culture. Do you know, it's, uh, it's not rigid. It's not rigid. It kind of just, you know, uh, it just flows with wherever it is. And that's why I think that, um, you know, maybe some Zen, Japanese Zen people might be looking askance at Western versions of, you know, Zen practice. But this is what Buddhism does. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's what makes it so vital, I think, as far as a, um, 
I don't even know what to call it a religion. I don't even like to call it a religion, actually. Yeah. Okay. Are we done? See you all next week at the movies. <laughs> Take care. Have a good week. Bye. Bye.